Welcome to another Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. Uh, I've always been Seamus Byrne, and I will continue to be Seamus Byrne. And with me today continues to be Nick Healy. Yeah, I have I kind of always been Nick Healy. I've been Nicholas when I'm in trouble. But I've got to admit, the spelling of Nick has altered over the years, something I don't normally admit to people. Mm. And look, I mean, I guess I could technically say that sometimes I am Seamus Byrne, depending on who's <laughs> saying my name. <laughs> it's always a classic. That's right. Um, so this is Bite Side. We talk about tech and games and pop culture type things, all the kind of realm of digital cool stuff. Uh, and this week, now I'm pretty sure there is a little bit of follow up from last week. Nick, is that correct? There is just something I want to go into. Uh, last week I was having a bit of a whinge about how difficult it was, uh, with Telstra at the time, um, that I was trying to just add the Pixel XL4 onto my existing plan. That's right. They wanted me to instead pay a dollar more for my plan and get half of the data. We have reached a small, I was not quite detente. I was about to say detente. We, we have reached a consideration where they are actually, yep. they are actually willing to meet me halfway and instead of giving me $10 off the $60 plan for 12 months. So I'm willing to take it. Uh, reason prevailed. They were finally willing to actually listen to what I was trying to explain. And I feel really good about that. And just very bizarrely, Telstra CEO Andy Penn is in Dubbo tomorrow. I will be having a quick chat to him. They are making a big announcement about 5G. We don't know what it is yet. I am excited. So you're going to bail him up tomorrow and go, now, Andy, my plan. <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have to. But no, I wouldn't have done that anyway. <laughs> you're right. But I am excited to find out what is happening with 5G in regional areas, and especially considering Dubbo, fairly populous city. We've got about 40,000 people. I'm just keen to see what that next step is. Yeah. And look, I uh, had an interesting roundtable with Andy Penn at CES in Las Vegas about... I'm going to peg it at about four years ago. Um, there was himself. There was, remember, Stephen Elop for a while was working with Telstra, um, helping them negotiate with some of the, you know, the big boys around the, the global table. Uh, but it's funny how in my sort of feeling about how 5G has evolved that it's just kind of becoming, you know, yet again, it's sort of more, you know, it's being sold with the idea of it's, it's more and faster um, and you need it. Uh, back then, there was a lot of talk about the fact that it is an entirely different kind of network technology and that with the whole idea of sort of mesh networking and that, you know, at its best, 5G is going to do things like let cars talk to each other out on the roads so that smart vehicles aren't just trying to, you know, bounce signals up to towers, but that all the different devices can start talking to each other and it's going to kind of change the network paradigm and that therefore... Plans and, you know, concepts of what we're signing up for would even change. And instead at the moment, we're getting the, you know, oh, and then we'll charge you 10 bucks more for 5G. Um, but, but we'll waive the extra money for the first six months. <laughs> Was I at that same round table? That really rings a bell. <laughs> yeah, probably. I think I was. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's sort of interesting how it's changed, but hopefully long-term, yeah, once it's genuinely bedded in, I just hope that, yeah, we start to kind of have a complete change to things. Because even the whole issue of having a data cap should change when we start talking about the fact that all devices are talking to each other and sharing 
you know, data across devices, not just through the network itself. And anyway, that's kind of its its own beast. But that will be interesting because 5G as a regional concept is still a you know, a bit down the track because there are two completely separate techs as well for, you know, long-range 5G versus short-range 5G in the cities. I know. I'm very interested to find out what they've got to say while they're here. Uh, quick follow-up for you. Last time we tried, you were going to try downloading what was available from Star Citizen. Uh, yes, I did download it, Nick. <laughs> and? Um, and? I, I definitely downloaded it. Um, <laughs> look, if I wasn't on the MBN, speaking of high-speed broadband, uh, it probably would have taken me a week um, oh. as there was an initial 30-something gig install uh, followed by a 60-something gig patch um, because obviously that's how it works. Uh, but look, that's not Star Citizen. <laughs> that's how many games work these days. Um, but yeah, once I, there were many hoops to jump through to try to sign up for an account. Um, there was wildly confusing information even to get to the downloader. So I had to sign up for the account and all this sort of info before I could even just download the installer. Um, because everything is kind of hidden within your account system on their website. Um, but I got it. I didn't end up getting to play it in time for that little window where it was available for free for everybody to try out. Um, but I did do a lot more reading and watching some videos and stuff to try to get more on top of it. And here's the thing that struck me, right? So while... You know, I think there's probably a lot of this confusion around how it's raised $250 million because you can right now sign up and you can pay $45 US and that gets you a starter pack, which gets you a ship. It gets you, you know, your like own self-landing hangar. You get all these kinds of structural elements. You get some currency in the universe. Um, you know, it's a basically you're buying yeah. You know, your starter pack for the yeah. game. And I feel like there's probably some of this whole thing because it, you know, it's a great generator of press, right? But I think a lot of this money is essentially people buying something that does exist and that they can jump in and do at the moment they buy it. So you can spend that money. But here's the thing that really sort of caught my eye when I was looking through all that is that one, your ship comes with a three month warranty, Nick. Uh, why do I need a warranty for a digital ship? Uh, because I think if you smash it up after that first three months, uh, you need to buy another ship. Are you kidding me? No. That's amazing. <laughs> and within that sort of intro structure that they have on the website, it actually <laughs> says, here's the steps to start playing. One is to install the game. The second, straight up, it just says, find a guide. Find a and guide. And then there is a button to find somebody who is willing to guide you through your first steps in the game. And and they have a system for people who already play to sign up to be guides to new players. Because this thing seems like one of the most complicated beasts imaginable. And they're like going, we're not even going to try to you know explain this to you. You need to just find a friend in the game world who will help you walk through it. And more, the more of this stuff that I was looking through, the more it kind of hit me that this, de- this game is not for me. <laughs> step one. <laughs> step one. But step two, I'm, I can completely understand why some people are utterly in love with this sort of deep, deep space simulation experience 
where it is about things like that of going, yeah, you get, you get your first ship, but you know, it's like um, hardcore mode in other games where it's like, well, you know, you have to start a new character. This is this version is well, no, you need to, you know, spend more credits in the game world if you want to replace that ship that blew up. Not, oh well, I'll just restart my game because my ship blew up. It's like, no, no, now you can't play unless you now get yourself another ship, and you need to earn credits or buy credits with real money in order to get yourself another ship. Look, I vaguely see what they're trying to do here, and I do understand it to a certain degree, and I even kind of don't mind the idea that you you kind of have to apprentice yourself to learn how Mm. to play the game or, you know, go through the university of space life or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Um, But I think I'm going to join you with it's not for me. Mm. But that's it. Again, it just, I did get that slight feeling where I go, I, I can appreciate that a game like this exists for a very, very specific kind of player who does not get that sort of commitment level and that sort of, you know, realism attitude towards, well, this is a game universe now that you are committing to and, you know, that probably means there's no quest line at the start that kind of walks you through how you use your stuff. You enter the game and you're probably sitting, you know, you're sitting there and you chip in your hangar wondering what what, what do I do? Where do I go? I, I don't know. But come on. Intro, so that's cool. Intro quests are the best part of any game in many ways, especially saying, and I think we chatted about this when we were talking about um WoW Classic, the first 10 levels of every WoW character are the most fun. Yeah. Learning yeah. what you can do, going and picking up those skills, learning how crafting works, they are the most fun. And I remember when, do you remember... Um, Ah, Lord British. What's he? Richard Garriott. Uh, he I'm released. Aware. He released his MMO Tabula Rasa, oh, and it came out. It was a you know space kind of fantasy vibe, and it um, it came out after World of Warcraft had been starting to succeed. Um, you know, having its wild success. And I remember actually logging into Tabula Rasa and unfortunately it was such a blank slate that my character's just standing there at this spawn point and I'm looking around and nothing in front of me suggested <laughs> what I was meant to do. And and I just thought, how have you learned nothing from why World of Warcraft was succeeding so well? It's like I there was a person standing not 10 yards away from me with a big exclamation mark over their head to tell me the first thing I should do. <laughs> and this game, I'm just literally standing there going, wow, okay, he really has gone full Tabula Rasa here. I tell you what, call it, bring Tabula Rasa out now, but call it Tabula Stranding and make Kojima do it. <laughs> I mean, people would just absolutely eat it up. They would love it. Oh, uh, yep, yep. Just put some black ink everywhere and <laughs> it'll all be good. So anyway... Getting on to this week's discussions, Nick, you want it's a kind of, I guess, a follow up, but you want to talk a little bit about how good Watchmen is. I just is. Is can't stop talking about how good Watchmen is. I'm so sorry. It is blowing my mind. Now, when I started watching it, we are eight episodes in, only one episode left in this season. So this is my catch up week. I really have to get back on board for I, the final episode. I honestly thought it was going to be an acquired taste for many people. Like I knew I was a little bit sold, but I could see how for a lot of people it might not work. Boy, oh boy. AV Club just named it number two in their best TV shows of the year. And again, there's only been eight episodes of it. That, yeah, that's really cool. That is cool. And 
Look, you know, I remember, again, at that first time, you know, watching the first episode, I know sort of watching it with Sally as well, she was just like, yeah, I'm out. Uh, yeah, this isn't for me. <laughs> but I, yeah, I really, I kind of knew that the, you know, the, the depth and the detail that was going on, I'm like, I, I did want to come back to it once there was a string of episodes I could dive into. It's letting the story unfold at its own pace. And I think that's really, really important. In fact, I would, I would add it in to say The Mandalorian as the two shows that have faith in their own pacing at the moment. They don't feel like they need to change things up. And I really appreciate it. What it's doing is inventive, incredibly inventive TV storytelling that really flows along from what the comic did back in the 80s. I can't get enough of it. I, I keep revising it. I'm like, oh, this is the best TV show I've seen this year. It's the best TV show I've seen five years. I'm going to call it, I reckon it's the best show I've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah, wow. Easily the last the decade. decade to me. And I, I cannot wow. wait to see where it ends. If this is all we ever get, I will go away happy. I really will because I don't think I've seen anything quite like it for quite a while. And that's, I mean, that is a really good point, right? The, you know, last two episodes of The Mandalorian, I've been, they were really sort of, you know, um, story of the week type episodes, which always kind of feels like in a series where we're only going to get eight or nine episodes. I can't remember which for it. Um, really feels like you shouldn't end up with filler episodes uh, in that kind of a season. So, you know, I mean, you're mentioning pacing, but it sounds like it's still like that there's a really sort of core strength to what, what's been being put up in the show. But I think what's happening for me, just to dive into Mando for a little bit, Mandalorian, is I'm just really appreciating how laconic it is when you've got a whole episode that's a dude in a mask and a baby and they barely speak for 30 minutes and I'm still yeah. wrapped. You know, I oh, just, yeah. I, I cannot get enough of that. The pacing on, you know, Let's talk Netflix for a second, especially Netflix Marvel. Now, the pacing yeah. on that, everyone can agree. I hope everyone can agree. I'm just going to jump out there and say everyone <laughs> can agree. There is no Netflix Marvel TV show that couldn't have lost four episodes minimum from each season and been better for it. Yeah, yeah. And look, in so many ways, it does feel like, you know, the whole world and, you know, I guess it's kind of a thanks to streaming services, but it's like everyone woke up to the old BBC model, right? Where it's like you get six episodes to tell the story you want to tell this year. And then in How five years, you're allowed those? to have another season. <laughs> but it's only three episodes. Thank you, Luther, which was some great TV as well. Oh, so good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there was also – there's a Paul Rudd series on Netflix um, where he is a kind of – there's two of him, and I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, um, I can vaguely remember. It's the one where he clones himself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, he just thinks he's becoming a better person um, and discovers a oh, living with yourself. That's it. That's what it's called. Yeah. So he thinks it's just like some kind of, you know, self-help thing. And it turns out that they've cloned him and his clone wakes up when he was meant to have died. Um, but, yeah, we watched it, found it really enjoyable. And the biggest issue that I had with it was it kind of throws in one of those classic you know, oh, here's the setup for the next season. And you're like, it didn't need that. I'd much rather have it feel like, exactly like you said, I, I love a season when it just finishes. We go, if this is all I get, that's wonderful. You and know, don't throw me this big kind of hook unless, you know, unless it's sort of 
important to the whole arc of what's kind of going on. But it was just such a throwaway, wee, that it just was silly. <laughs> there is a joy to the one-season wonders, and two that stand out, and they're not from this decade, staggeringly, because that's how old my TV taste goes. Uh, the Unusuals, which was an attempt to do MASH as a cop comedy drama with a very young Jeremy Renner in it, track it down it's great and of course the classic one is terriers that got cancelled at the peak of its game way before streaming could have saved it uh that was 2009 it got cancelled i'm still a little bitter about it um i i I agree that i think streaming has changed the way we are willing to take tv and narrative storytelling when it comes to that small screen yeah and it's funny, I listened to this, it's a wonderful podcast, Script Notes, and it is about screenwriters and the profession of screenwriting. And really interesting how, you know, these sort of short seasons have actually been, um, causing quite a lot of sort of problems for, you know, for people behind the scenes because you know, they don't have this lovely year long contract on a, you know, 22 episode season anymore. Uh, and so, yeah, the way in which that people can be retained based on the number of episodes, but also they kind of get locked out from working on other projects uh, until they know whether or not it's being picked up for another season. And there's all these sorts of things that, you know, that they're actually currently trying to renegotiate uh, within the way the sort of whole contracts work within the uh, writers' union. Uh, is, you know, it's like we're getting great television, but it's interesting that it's also, yeah, causing a whole bunch of other troubles for the kinds of people who write for television specifically. Look, perfect time for me to get on my soapbox very, very quickly and just say, join your union. Find a union that will accept you and join your union, please. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) You want to talk Olympics? Yes. So this is, I guess it's a bit more TV talk and a bit more 5G talk, I guess. Um, But I saw an announcement related to uh, Channel 7, which has the rights to the Olympics uh, in 2020. Uh, Yeah, being the Tokyo Olympics, lots of sort of talk. And, you know, it's just, I guess, as the tech keeps moving forward, there's all the talk about, you know, that a lot of it will be broadcast in 4K um, because, you know, that's just how the broadcast partners can do it nowadays, particularly when they're just filming it. But, of course, then it comes down to how will the different broadcasters around the world uh, take that 4K feed and turn it into local content. Um, surprise, surprise, of course, on broadcast TV here, we cannot in any way, shape, or form handle 4K as a broadcast <laughs> signal. I'm shocked. Um, but, yeah, but there will be 4K available um, as a partnership with Optus and the Optus Sports channels that are only available through Fetch TV or your, I guess, web-type uh, connection-type things, um, and only if you have a 5G home broadband uh, router. No, hang on, uh, that's got to be narrowing the like playing field. Does that sound like it's going field. to be lots of people? No, that sounds like it's going to be <laughs> a just... very select group of, I assume, technology journalists and pretty much no one else. <laughs> Oh man, it's like this stuff just really, um, it's just so stupid when you think, oh, like, yeah, make a partnership with the appropriate company that's going to help you get that great 4K vibe out there. But it feels like the sort of thing where it is, you know, a blatant, no, we're not going to, you know, let Foxtel touch any of this or whatever it might be. But the idea that, um, that it's even not just if you already have access to Optus Sport. You know, there's a lot of people who've gone out of their way to access the whole Optus Sport system because they got the exclusive rights to English Premier League. 
Um, you know, there were kind of lots of issues around that. The fact that there's even like, you know, just the digital broadcasting versus traditional broadcasting. Um, or oh, sorry, you know, internet broadcasting means there's a slight delay that means you know, you're actually, you know, many seconds behind someone who's watching the uh, broadcast version, which means if you're watching along on Twitter, for example, uh, other people who aren't getting an internet feed are ahead of you, and therefore you might suddenly be seeing everybody screaming about a goal that was just scored, um, you know, and then 10 seconds later you see it on your TV. <laughs> So all sorts of weird things you have to be careful about in that context. And then they're not even saying it's going to be available to everybody who has Optusport. It's Optusport and 5G home broadband. And that's like, that's you know, not you or I, Nick, because no. certainly they're not going to be offering 5G home broadband to those of us in regional areas at the moment. They are um, most certainly not. And oh, it's just, it's really, really stupid. But it did make me wonder, you know, is there anything in the world that would make you jump through hoops to get some kind of fancy high-res upgrade? Um, because nothing leaps to mind for me, but, um, yeah, I'm sure. No, I'm going to say, um, yeah. No. Uh, nothing that would make me go and buy some other fancy service. Yeah, if I have the service, it'd be like, oh, that's a nice bonus. But. It, like and I, but I think someone in a marketing department thinks this really is the kind of thing that would make someone go and 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 buy their service. Look, the thing that's always pushed me into upgrades has been gaming, and it's an unusual one because I know that traditionally we've thought that sport was often an upgrade channel. Uh, you know, the the mum and dad punter, and especially around uh, big events like the Olympics. For me, it was gaming. I don't think I got excited about four K until it hit consoles and I knew that I could actually get that rolling and that was what actually pushed yeah. me into upgrading both console and TV. That's my own taste. That's exactly where it is. We have, as I said, traditionally thought of sport as a big upgrade pusher, but this is so niche, I'm not sure it can work. And it's a good point as well, right? You, know, there, you, you cannot argue that, you know, or rather, you know, I will absolutely believe that we are going to see ads in shops next to 4K TVs that mention the 2020 Olympics as that rolls around next year. And we are going to see TV companies, you know, putting Olympics, you know, whoever the official Olympic partner is, probably Samsung, you know, <laughs> there'll be Olympic-type vibes advertising their latest 4K TVs. And will those TVs actually have any real chance of, of showing us 4K, 4K Olympics? Uh, not really. Not really. Unless somehow maybe Samsung will do a deal with Optus to give away 5G home broadband with any purchase of uh, a new, uh, you know, 75-inch TV <laughs> or some kind of crazy deal like that. My head is spinning at the thought of that. Look, you know, th they could use this and a couple of the, um, depending on who the partners are, you could see something like this as a real push towards OLED for people who haven't made that move or even about yes. form factor. You know, our TV will just magnetise onto the wall so you can watch the Olympics, blah, 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 blah. We could see that a bit. Yeah. But you're right. I don't, like, certainly, maybe, maybe the next Olympics it'll be, are you 8K ready? Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> Let's not even get started on 8K because <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I have no belief in the idea of 8K as a living room uh, requirement for any kind of additional viewing pleasure. Um, but... Before I start feeling like I'm going to, I'm going to threaten legal action at companies for, you know, tooting their horn. Uh, I believe you've been enjoying some people deciding that they are preparing to plot legal action. 
Look, this is wild. That was like a me. very stretched segue. No, hey. loved it, loved it. <laughs> this is really, really wild to me because we do know that Star Wars in particular has maybe a bit of a problem with a toxic fandom. Now, people can track me down on no. social media if they want to oh. yell at me about that. They absolutely can. But I think we have seen more than a few issues about it. Uh, I've heard it referred to as the fandom menace, which I really, really, really appreciate because nice. I'm a sucker for bad puns. This has been doing the round saying it's a Reddit post wondering what the legal implications would be if the rise of Skywalker ends up being awful. The question is, <laughs> what would the legal ramifications be if the fan base effectively claimed Star Wars for itself? For instance, what if they created a council or a voting process for determining what was or was not canon and ignored everything Disney put out or said unless it was good and people purely followed legend material? Or effectively, we could open sourcing Star Wars through a loophole. Now, I'm just, this is clearly not being, the people who are sharing it are not suggesting this is a good idea. Let's just make that very clear here. But it is wild to me, the ownership that we have started to see, and I do believe it has been driven by social media, that some people suggest that because they are a fan of something, they therefore own it, not the creators, but the fans themselves. And I'm going to go and call it the Sonic's teeth issue. Because where we now live is a world where they have been shown that by being a fan and by saying they don't like something, they can affect a systemic change in the media that they were worried about Sonic's teeth. And I'm worried that they're going to start making more wins. I don't think they're going to find any legal ramifications or anything like that. But I'm worried that creators are going to start feeling the pushback from an angry fandom, even if what they are angry at is a creator's vision, not something that would be, I don't know how you put it, like a, you know, not a, not a, not a medium that's now suddenly gone wildly politically off piste from where we are in the world today. I'm talking about an actual creator's vision, what they wanted to do with their storytelling, upsetting the fans and actually affecting change. And that scares me. Yeah. And look, ownership is absolutely the right word here, isn't it? And which, I mean, hilariously, because that's the kind of legal issue that they're wondering about <laughs> is, you know, ah, oh, but you know, this really deep sense of, I love this so much, it belongs to me. And that as a community, um, yeah, there is this sort of subgroup of that community that really does sort of want to believe that somehow they are the arbiters of what the good version should be. You know, and that therefore, yeah, they're somehow going to declare at the end of all this that, um, that, you know, they'll decide if the, you know, I mean, part of me is like, these people are, are too young to have remembered living through what happened when the prequels were released, aren't they? Because, you know, <laughs> we weren't that happy with them, but we got on with it. Oh. <laughs> and we made plenty of jokes about, about how bad they were, but, it was an earlier era of the internet where we didn't form internet mobs to decide to abuse everybody involved or somehow blame, you know, anybody else. And, and even that idea that somehow, you know, it's like they're forgetting that George Lucas was the person who made those awful, awful prequels. Um, and, you know, and they think somehow that, you know, that other people have, have lost touch with what Star Wars is meant to be. And, it, yeah, it's a really, really sort of tricky one. And you're right. I look, 
I I put the Sonic thing in a slightly different category because those <laughs> teeth really were terrible. <laughs> um, I'm aware. And- <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it, that one feels, but you're right. Like every time one of these things actually happens and we see it in the games community as well, that if someone does change something, just partly when they think, well, we'll actually, you know, listen to some of that feedback. And now and then, you know, someone might rightly think, yeah, we, you know, we've gone the wrong way with this. Let's change something. But then that feeds this beast where they think that somehow you know that's that's their victory and that they now get to demand these things of of everybody else um it was very at least nice to see that that um that reddit post uh a lot of the comments were thankfully <laughs> you know in line with the whole no no this is <laughs> this is one of the funniest things i've ever seen someone post on on the star wars subreddit so at least <laughs> there's a good sense that well, I mean, we we like to hassle Ryan Johnson, but we don't think we're just going to take the IP away from Disney somehow. <laughs> it is pretty wild. And look, you know, you are correct that perhaps the uh, Sonic's teeth issue, as I keep calling it, does have one difference. No one was upset at Sonic's teeth because they were female. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, they were just they were just dumb teeth. They were just and, dumb teeth. Yeah. So, Rise yes. of Skywalker. Two hours and 35 minutes long. Are you prepared when you go and see it? Um, yes, we have booked our tickets. Uh, we are booked in for a 9.30 a.m. session on nice. the day it comes out. So nice. we're not, we've got kids. We're not doing crazy midnight sessions because by 2.30 in the morning, everyone would be asleep. Um, but we're like, yep. You know, sparkling fresh, we'll have had a sleep, we'll have avoided the internet overnight, <laughs> and then we'll, yeah, hit that thing uh, first thing in that morning. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're hyped for it. But, again, I'm someone, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed the first two. I think we're getting to the end of a saga, and that means sometimes you absolutely should be tearing down some of what people think it's all about, you know, and like, so that's where I'm, you know, all in on all these, you know, on all the things that happen in the second movie that are about essentially sort of saying, why do we even think this is the way things are meant to be? Because in the end, you're like, if this is a, the end of this whole cycle of all things, uh, you know, Anakin Skywalker and family, then, you know, then it has to actually end somehow. And that, you know, that means you have to make things change significantly so that the entire this entire Star Wars universe is different because of what's just happened. Look, I wildly agree, um, but I think there's one change I'd like to see. Four films of this length, can we bring back the intermission? That's what I'm really driving at here. Two hours and 35 minutes is a long commitment. I found it with what was the last Avengers Endgame. I just, can we have intermissions? Well, yes, I, I now I can see where this is going, and you're right. I, like, I think there are so many, so many movies we could even. I mean, look, <laughs> The Irishman has released on Netflix a three-hour and something epic from you know from Scorsese. You're at home. You can pause that thing. You're probably I mean, watching it on a tablet. You're taking it with you. Let's oh, be honest. It's disgusting. Yeah, you are a disgusting oh, oh, person yep. if you've done it. This is too. This it, is too it, gripping. It's I can't, how you've done it. I can't pause it. <laughs> but no, look. If you know, for those of us who are desperate, I it it hit me the other day. We went and saw uh, Frozen Two uh, with the kids Lovely. the other day, and 
most times now, particularly if it's, uh, you know, a kids themed film and we might need to kind of negotiate for, um, pee breaks, though my kids are very well trained. So they do a very good job of going to the bathroom ahead of times. Um, but run pee, the app. If people have not heard of this app, it is truly one of the greatest uses of smartphone technology in the history of uh, you know, of the app store, quite frankly, um, it is all about giving you the optimal times in which you could run to do a bathroom pit stop while you are in the cinema. Now, and it is brilliant. How is it done? So I remember you telling me about it years ago and I was like, hang on, hang on. How does this work? Are these crowdsourced information? So yeah, they basically have, uh, now they, they have a staff, but they do also have, you know, and by staff and, you know, it's kind of very much run on an oily rag type of a setup, but, um, you know, they've got a, a team of people who are there, sort of trusted writers who will put this information in as efficiently as possible. They do, um, like beyond, cause they will always list who did, um, that movie's run P listings. And, you know, in a sense, I guess they've built up this kind of expertise. The brilliant part of it is that, you know, they will often, what they're aiming for is picking out a few scenes in the movie that are exposition type, conversation type scenes. So it's like, it's not that you're going to miss sort of a key moment. Um, and then what they actually do for that is they will point out at this particular time in the movie, this is when you'll go, you will have four minutes available. And it gives you a synopsis of what occurs in that little break so <laughs> that you will get back and you will not actually have, have then need to catch up because it says, here's what happens during those four minutes. See, th- to me, this is amazing because, you know, otherwise you've got to wait for, oh, hang on, is this scene naturally winding down? Is this the bit where they all just sit around and have a bit of a whinge in the ship for five yeah. minutes? Like, where <laughs> yes, are we exactly. going with this? The only thing I've got a problem with is um, I, I don't check my phone in the cinema. No. So this is one of the great things that they've even set up in it. And this is how it's evolved so well. Okay. I like it. So yeah, it's, I just, when I had it out, I noticed it had a 10th anniversary logo up on, uh, on the screen when I was looking at it. I'm like, that's, that is actually brilliant. Um, is you can set it so that you start a timer within the app during the, you know, at the start of the movie. And it will even give you like a little alert. It could even buzz your, you know, Apple Watch. Oh. Um, so that it'll just remind you that this is one of, you know, this is one of your opportunities just as a little, you know, just a little vibration alert. So it's not going to kind of annoy you, but you can just have that little alert up your sleeve. And then even if you don't care about the run out to the bathroom moments, it tells you if there is something at the end of the credits or not. Yes. Yes, that is exactly what I want because I'm sick of Googling that while sitting through credits. Yeah. And so it is just that perfect thing. And what they, what they've set up now is, you know, as the way that they fund it, you can buy P coins. <laughs> uh, it's $1 per coin. Um, or, um, you can, but you know, basically it then also will credit those towards, I believe it's about 20 bucks that that then is your like lifetime subscription. So once you paid that, it's like, yep, cool. You don't have to pay anymore. Um, and then, but on the flip side is when you're not at the movies, uh, it encourages you to just watch some ads and things that are on the, uh, on the app so that you can actually then earn some of those P coins. 
um, so that when you then do get to the cinema, you're like, yeah, I've got like five P coins up my sleeve and it just costs one to unlock all of the details for any one movie permanently. I'm really taken with this. I'm actually quite genuinely downloading it as we speak. Although I have to say, uh, living where I do, we don't have a cinema that serves alcohol. So it has vastly reduced my need to take <laughs> pee breaks while watching a movie compared to the wealth of options in Sydney where I can even have wine delivered midway through. Uh, yeah, true. You know, it swings and roundabouts, wins and losses. Yeah. It, it's but the they, good and the bad. I think just it's just a massive like credit to the people behind it who because again you know these things do really start as just weird little internet projects and someone thinking oh like some people might find this handy right and and it's just the fact that they've kept kind of adding those extra features and little details so that it is genuinely such a valuable service. Um, and that's it all the way down to the, you know, the credits are 12 minutes long. There is a 30 second end scene at the very end of the credits, or it'll even say, you know, there will be one scene three minutes into the credits. And after that scene, there is nothing else. All those kinds of little things that you just go, thank you so much for providing this service. You've made the world better by putting this on a device that I have available in my pocket. It's just great. Well, I've got it now and I will be road testing it. Now, I don't want to get fixated on this particular topic that we are moving to now, but it is, as how did you put it, one of those wonderful little internet projects that probably should have just stayed an yes. internet project. Have you seen the video of Elon Musk driving the Cybertruck around Nobu, the restaurant in, I think, LA? No, I haven't. What What do you mean driving it around like inside the rest? No, just driving it around. But it's just like uh, the future is here. Cause he, oh, right. But it's not because he's picking it up from the valet. So clearly it hasn't gone and parked itself or anything like that. Yep. And then I don't know who's driving out of that restaurant, but he manages to knock over a bollard on the way through and nearly take out two other cars. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, now, look, that sounds like know, a real winner. I'm aware that I uh, maybe on the losing side of history here that when I look at the Cybertruck, I still cannot get over just how dumb it looks. I'm prepared to be villainized, pilloried, whatever I need to be for this. It looks even stupider when you see it moving. Like it really looks atrociously bad. See, I like, I, yeah, I'm not a fan of the design. I, I see the way it's harkening back to, uh, you know, to the likes of the DeLorean, you know, like all these kind of the, the these kind of sharp edge vibes about what the future was meant to look like. Um, and I know, you know, I think I might have said it last time when it came up, but that, you know, I know like Sally completely actually thought it was brilliant precisely because it looks like one of those throwbacks. One of our old colleagues, Tim Stevens, who runs Roadshow at CNET, mm. I did like he had a bit of a go at a lot of the other uh, car journalists for sort of, for really sort of, you know, laughing at this design in that he pointed out that they spend so much of the rest of their year decrying the fact that every car company is just pumping out me to designs that are boring and there's got nothing going on. And then the second we see something that looked different, they all absolutely sort of, you know, jumped on it and just, you know, kicked the crap out of it. And he's like, can we at least applaud the fact that someone is offering up something that stands out, you know, and that that might at least encourage other people to do better, you know, other kinds of fresh designs that learn from this but do something better. You know, I think that's kind of an interesting 
alternate on on that whole sort of side of the Cybertruck discussion. Yeah, well, look, I don't, and, and with all due respect to Tim, who absolutely 100% knows what he's talking about, and I'm just being uh, a bit of an RG prick, uh, <laughs> Tommy Wiseau offers something a bit different when it comes to cinema, but it doesn't mean we need to applaud it. <laughs> But, and yet people will fill the occasional cinema in order to, to watch it and laugh along. There is no accounting for taste. <laughs> That's right. Take us Look, home. What do you got for me? All right. So, yes, just finishing it up. Uh, 25 years of PlayStation was this week. Just thought well worth a nod. Um, also as part of sort of noticing that, you know, realizing that um, this year, earlier in the year, Game Boy turned 30. And it just kind of really struck me that, Comparing those two things, I feel like Game Boy, you know, was around when I was a lad, but I guess that was mostly probably just Game & Watch somehow confusing my brain into thinking it was Game Boy. Um, but no, yeah, Game Boy just seemed like it's so much older. And I think partly it was really about that idea that one of the things that PlayStation seemed to do when it launched was draw that line in the sand that sort of said, you know what, games are growing up and they're now... You know, a more serious medium for more serious games when essentially, you know, the, the competition was, you know, Sega and Nintendo at that time. And both of them were, you know, very sort of, you know, like very family friendly, very sort of fast paced. Of course, you know, there was sort of a few things that might push the boundaries, but they were well known for the Sonics and the Marios and things like that. But then PlayStation really sort of, you know, came out so strong with, with big stories in games and really sort of, you know, epic, more grown-up ideas about what these games could be even about. You know, I mean, 3D-focused, 100%, and that's kind of a you know fascinating part of that whole backstory. But, um, but yeah, that just was part of what it really struck me, that uh, it felt like Game Boy was from a completely different era in game history, even though it was just that, you know, I guess the, the front end and, closer to the back end of the, I guess, the very end of the 80s versus heading to the mid-90s. Yeah, I can't work out what's weirder, the fact there's only five years between them or it has been a quarter of a century of PlayStation, which is just <laughs> bizarre. Also, just to have that great Aussie whinge, of course, in Australia, it's only been 24 years of PlayStation. True, we had to wait true. till November 95. It's a bit of a personal freak out for me because my first job in print, in magazines, was deputy editor of PlayStation magazine uh, in 1996. We weren't even a full year through the PlayStation in Australia when I joined then. Wow. Uh, yeah, that was my very first job um, before I moved on to Internet AU, the magazine that you and I have um, worked on at various times. So it's it's PlayStation is often... I think of it as my console because I hadn't been a console gamer. Uh, I'd been, a, if anything, a PC gamer way before that. Um, it was the console. I didn't grow up playing a lot of consoles or anything at all. PlayStation for me was the one that sucked me in and it's one I still keep going back to um, and I'm still at PlayStation 4 a very big fan of. Yeah, and, you know, like one of the things I do remember was in those original ads, um, they actually had Tim Ferguson from Tug Anthony All-Stars dressed up in some like weird clobber, but I was an old Doug's fan. So I sort of remembered that was like, oh, he's in the ads. And there was just that whole, you know, don't underestimate the power of the PlayStation sort of vibe going on in, in the various ads and things um, that, yeah, just seemed like so much, you know, like it, it, it was really selling that idea that, that this is delivering something that no other console has ever tried to do. 
Very much so. And it was also the console that I think, and uh, I could get myself in trouble here, but I think it pushed the idea that gaming was also for adults. Yeah, 100%. You and know, people the likes like, of Resident Evil. Yes. Yeah, you know, this stuff was so important. And um, I don't know if you remember this part of the backstory as well, that so, you know, uh, Sony was originally developing a, a, you know, a disc, like a, sorry, you know, a like CD-ROM-based extension to the Nintendo lineup for Nintendo. Uh, Nintendo went, actually, um, we've decided we're going to partner with Philips instead on this, you know, with some CD stuff that they've been showing us. And so PlayStation, you know, well, Sony, you know, in that very kind of, I guess, Japanese sort of sense was feeling really, really nose out of joint. Like there was a real sense of, well, we have to get revenge on the way Nintendo has slighted our company. And so then they pursued taking their technology and releasing their own game console instead. And I, that's how PlayStation happened. Yeah, look, you know, <laughs> love it. a lot to be said for having your nose out of joint for making a uh, 25-year career out of um, uh, a great gaming console. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, the one other thing that I, I love about it was back in the PlayStation 3 era when in that sort of first gen, when we had the folding at home, um, uh, you know, basically screensaver. And it was part of a project that was helping to do protein folding research. And there was a time when the collective power of everybody running that on PlayStations around the world was actually ranking on like, I think it was a top 10 supercomputer in terms of, you know, the amount of power it was putting out there. So yeah, really, really sort of cool moments all sort of through the, you know, the different phases of what this thing did. And even the old original PlayStation people playing CDs on it at parties um, with the crazy visualizer on the TV so people could sit back and go, yeah, man, check out these cool visuals. Well, that was part of the fun, wasn't it? Getting home and, um, you know, popping on that visualizer because it was something that actually played your CDs, which was not not every item in the house played CDs back in those days. I just suddenly remembered that when the PlayStation came to Australia, and I just – great bit of perspective here – it cost $699.99 at that time. I've just run that through the inflation calendar Ooh, yeah, right. calculator. That would be $1,190 today to go and buy a PlayStation 1. Yeah, wow. And, I mean, right, it's one of those weird discussions that always comes up around video games, and that's that, you know, as much as you know, we have kind of always been paying roughly, you know, $80, $90 for brand-new games, but that in an inflationary sense, the games are getting cheaper. And and in a lot of ways, that kind of then feeds into some of these issues around, um, you know, how do, as the games industry keep kind of doing the bigger, crazier things when technically per game, they actually, you know, don't make quite the same money that they used to. Thankfully, I guess the industry grows, and so it's meant they sell more units at least. Um, but, you know, for smaller game developers and stuff, there's always been that weird price ceiling uh, issue that comes up sometimes. But, you know, like, man, when you go back and, like, look up laptop prices from that same sort of era, and you suddenly go, that would be $7,000 now. No one would ever pay that kind of money. It's like, they used to because they had to. (laughs) Look, I just want to point out, too, and this is freaking me out a little bit, I I got that price on the PlayStation 1 from an article I wrote on the PlayStation (laughs) console uh, in 2013, which is when the PlayStation 4 was coming out. So we've actually had six years of PlayStation 4. Yeah, and look, even remember the way in which, you know, with, um, uh, you know, I mean, thinking about the CD tech, that 
when we think back again to like DVD on PlayStation 2 uh, with Blu-ray on PlayStation 3, that, that at various moments, they've often actually been, you know, one of the best options on the market just to have that tech attached to your TV. Uh, so, you know, that was something really that, again, that Sony championed in a way that no one else had before them to think this can be a multimedia entertainment device. It isn't just for games, but then, you know, yes, the games that you can play on it are also now for the kind of person who, you know, can afford to, you know, have a great evening entertainment experience of any kind as mature or as casual as they want sitting in front of their TV. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, PlayStation 2, for allowing me to come home extraordinarily drunk one day and try and watch Swordfish on DVD, uh, not realising just how it started and being wildly confused less than about five minutes into it and thinking I'd missed the whole disc. So I really appreciate that one. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, PlayStation. <laughs> I think that's about it for this week, right? Um, we're pretty much out of time. We are out of time, but uh, we'll do one more at the very least before the year ends. So I'm keen if you are. Yeah, let's do it. We can make that happen. We can. Um, but, yeah, uh, listeners, I always keep keep trying to say readers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> listeners, thanks for tuning in. And, of course, you can you know, please tell us if you're uh, enjoying the show and what you want to hear more of or less of, or if you want to join in our various ranting uh, affairs about the different things that we've been talking about today. Uh, and, you know, maybe you're having a wonderful 5G experience because you live in exactly the right spot in Sydney and you are going to thoroughly enjoy watching the Tokyo Olympics in 4K. Um, if you are that person, let us know. Uh, that'd be really cool. Um, I am on I am on Twitter. You can find me at Seamus, S-E-A-M-U-S. Some people will say Seamus, um, but that is Seamus. And Nick is? I'm uh, Dr. Nick, but that is D-R underscore Nick because um, I created that Twitter handle when underscores were cool. Yeah, look, I remember making the very first Gizmodo, Kotaku, and Lifehacker uh, addresses for Australia, um, for the Australian editions, and putting underscores in because I was also trying to keep things really, like, really super short. And so I made them things like, you know, life underscore AU. And of course, later it was just, you know, and then they finally supported later the idea that your, your handle wouldn't also take up part of the tweet length, uh, which was a big reason for trying to keep it desperately short back then. God damn it, but Twitter. you can find us at at Byteside uh, and at the Byteside on Instagram and just Byteside, not just Byteside, the word <laughs> Byteside on Facebook and email at ask at Byteside.com. Thank you so much, Nick. Once again, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for letting me have a bit of a rant.